Well, good morning, everybody. I love that guy's voice. Don't you love his voice? I think we should hear the whole thing one, one Sunday morning. It's so inspiring. Hope you're looking forward, uh, those of you that are um, teachers, to a week off. Uh, I know, as Tim said, some people are away. Many people are away this week from the church family. The youth are away this morning. And uh, thanks, James, for the heads up about Valentine's for those people who might need a gentle reminder this week. <laughs> And the other great thing about Valentine's that I love is that it's February the 14th, and February is my least favorite month of the year, which means that when we get to February the 14th, we are halfway through the, the, the worst month, in my humble opinion, of the year. So it's all good. Okay, if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to turn to Hebrews 12 and dive straight in. We're continuing our series, as you've seen this morning, uh, Knowing God. We're finishing it next week. And today we're going to talk about knowing God as Father. I'm going to assume that most of us here in this room this morning are here because we have a desire to know God or a desire to know him better. If you've been dragged along by a friend or a relative, I do welcome you and add my welcome to you. And I promise you that this service never lasts for more than about three and a half hours. (laughs) The awesome thing about this Christian God that we worship, the God that we love, the God that we worship is that he is a God that we can know. He's not a concept that we can know about. He's not an idea that we can know things um, of. He's not somewhere out there as a vague force that we can get some sense of. He's a personal God that we can know personally. He wants us to experience him. Jesus came to show us what God was like. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to show us that God was and God is our Father. He came to introduce us to the Father. He came to show us how to have relationship with God as a Father. He came to show us how to live like children who are loved by a Father. The relationship, this relationship that we're invited into, isn't one of a servant and a master. It's not a relationship of a pupil with its teacher. It's not a relationship of a sick person with their doctor. We're invited into this relationship as children to a loving heavenly father. And Jesus came to show us what that relationship looks like. Now, I'm aware that for many of us, that word father can be a challenging one. The Bible describes God in all kinds of ways. He's described as a, as, a, as a deliverer. He's described as a shepherd. He's described as a king. And depending on our kind of experience with some of those kind of words, the the software, as it were, that's been uploaded onto our hearts can affect uh, how we then come to what the Bible says about him. I don't know when you last had uh, an experience of a shepherd. What comes to mind when you think of the word shepherd? I haven't had an experience with a shepherd for a long, long time. I once saw one in a distance chasing sheep in a field. But I have no kind of software uploaded onto my heart about shepherd. So when I come to what the Bible has to say about shepherds, it's fairly easy to download it. But we all have software when it comes to the word father. We all have an experience of a human father. So when we come to talking about God as a father, what we read in the Bible, what we hear spoken about, uh, we have software on our hearts. And therefore, sometimes coming to what the Bible says and coming into the fullness of the experience of what the Bible says about God as our father can be more challenging. 
So I'm just going to pray as we talk about God as Father this morning, uh, because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us, as it were, to get hold of the revelation that the Bible uh, gives us and that Jesus wants to bring us as God as Father. So Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our helper. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who brings revelation of the deep love, the deep affection, the deep commitment, the goodness of Father God. And we just pray as we talk about this this morning, that for each one of us here, we would have fresh revelation of who you are to us as Father and how great your love is for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's get to the passage for today. The most famous passage in the Bible about God as Father, the picture that Jesus paints is in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, which will be familiar to many of us. And uh, it's a beautiful picture of the unbelievable patience and the affection and the commitment and the forgiveness and the uh, the, uh, acceptance and the delight of God as our Father. It's one of my favorite stories. I I have a picture. Uh, in one of my rooms at home of the embrace of the heavenly father of his son. I love it. But today we are looking at a different passage in the New Testament, which is less familiar and maybe uh, possibly deliberately avoided at times, uh, which is in Hebrews 12. And we're going to have a look at what that says to us about God as father, and then look at a story in the gospels that illustrates what it's talking about. So we're going to read from Hebrews 12. Uh, seven verses, starting at verse five. And I'm going to read this from the NLT. It should come up on the screen. Have you forgotten the encouraging words that God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. It's not one of those kind of pink, furry, fluffy passages. As I've said, I love the story and the picture painted of the father in the story of the prodigal son. And I love the picture of the father embracing his boy when he comes home. And uh, that picture really does something for me because, you know, I struggle to, or one of my struggles in my journey of relating to God as father is to trust and to believe and to experience his affection. So I love that story. One of my favorite songs to sing. We 
sang it this morning. He's a good, good father. It does something to our spirits, doesn't it? When we sing that song and, and, and uh, sing the truth of what we believe and want to experience more of the goodness of God as father. God is perfect. He's loving and he's completely and always good. But if we don't include this passage in our understanding and our connection with God as Father, uh, if we don't uh, wrestle with this, I think this is probably the second passage in the New Testament that speaks as, uh, as, as much about God as Father after the prodigal son. If we don't wrestle with it, then we end up with an incomplete picture of who God really is and what his love is really like. And God's not like a box of quality streets. I don't know what you do (laughs) when you come to a box of quality streets. I pick out the pink ones because they're fudge and they're my favorite. I don't know what color yours are. And uh, I leave the ones that I don't like. But God's not like that. And uh, we have a better, richer, and more fulfilling relationship with him when we embrace him as who he says he is to us than if we pick the bits that we like and leave the bits that we don't. The interesting thing about this passage that the writer of Hebrews is saying right at the outset is he says, don't forget these encouraging words. Did you notice that? That's how the passage begins. This is encouraging. Well, I don't know about you, But that wouldn't be my first response to this passage. Would it be yours, encouraging? I don't think so. I'm not sure encouraging is what describes it. I wonder what that word discipline does to you. Mentioned 10 times in the passage. How do you respond when you read that word discipline? How does that fit in with your image uh, of God as a good and loving father? What kind of rises up within you when you hear that word discipline? God loves us so much that he doesn't refuse to discipline us as his children. He is so good, so perfect, and so loving that he doesn't refuse to discipline us. We don't like to hear about it. Well, I'll speak for myself. I don't like to hear about it. I don't like to think about it. But I need it. I need the loving, shaping discipline of God in my life. And it's utterly true that God accepts us as as we are. But if our relationship with God is going to release the fullness of the blessings into our lives and our hearts that we long for it to, then we need to embrace this dimension of his loving character, that he is committed to shaping us and training us in the way that will release more of the fullness of his love into our lives and his heart and our hearts. There are habits in you and me. There are thought processes in you and me. There are beliefs in you and me. There are reactive ways that you and I work that harm us. I don't know if you believe that about you, but that's what the Bible says. They harm us. And God is so committed to growing us and shaping us and filling us with more of the fullness of himself that he's, committing, he's committed to dealing with those parts of us. He hears your cries of wanting more of him. He hears my cries of wanting more of him, of wanting to be more used by him, of wanting to be more fruitful, of wanting to know more of his love, of wanting to experience him more fully, of wanting to make more of an impact, of having more hope, of having more freedom, of being healed. He hears your cries and he hears my cries. But the answer to some of those prayers 
is his loving hand dealing with some of the stuff that's in me that gets in the way of him pouring in more of his life and his love. Anyone can talk the talk, but we can't walk the walk without the loving hand of a God who is willing to discipline us. Now, let's just clarify up what this word discipline means. I think for lots of us, there's, a, there's a, a, a confusion over this word. It does not mean punishment. And actually, you'll have noticed that in that word, uh, in uh, the NLT version that we've just read, which I think is actually one of the closest to the original uh, text translation, it does use the word in there, he punishes. That is not a good translation of the original word. It should, it's better translated, corrects. Okay, he corrects. Discipline is not about punishment. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I've been struggling with certain areas or God's felt distant and I found myself saying to the Lord, Lord, are you punishing me? I don't know if you've ever found yourself asking that question. The answer to that is always no. It's always no. A number of years ago, um, a long time ago, actually. Our children now are all young adults. For those of you who know us, um, uh, something happened in one of our son's bedrooms and uh, the carpet didn't come off very well because of what happened. And son, who was uh, guilty of misdemeanor, ended up um, being dealt with by his father so that such an, such an event wouldn't happen again. And uh, that was all done and dusted fairly quickly. And I went up into his room. I hadn't been involved in uh, the, the punishment measures, as it were. And I went up into his room about a quarter of an hour later to check that he was okay. Discovered the crime on the carpet, as it were. And looked at him, because I wasn't aware of what had gone on between Tim and said son. And I looked at him, and he could see my face drop. And uh, he obviously was aware that I didn't know what had happened. And he looked at me very happily, big smile on his face. And he said, Mummy, it's okay. I've been punished. I can't be punished again. <laughs> and, you know, I thought in that moment, that is really profound. You get this and you get the gospel, actually. Because Jesus was punished for our sins. And he took the price and paid the price that was, for, that was ours. And God has promised that he will never punish anyone again because of what, he has, what was inflicted on Jesus. Isaiah 53 says he took our punishment upon him. And we need to be people that are absolutely convinced that we know what the answer is to that question. Because if we're not, we misunderstand God. And there was my son who absolutely understood once the punishment's been dished out, that's it, it can't happen again. He was so chuffed with himself. <laughs> Discipline is not punishment. But I think one of the reasons we have an issue with this word is that in our experience, it has so often been meted out with anger or with rejection or with a sense of disapproval of who we are. Discipline is not about God's disapproval of us. It is not about his disapproval of us. True discipline is an expression of love. It's, a, it's an expression of his deep concern for more of his good in us, more of his life working through us. The father's discipline is about the father mining the gold in you. He's mining the gold in me. So 
So here are some other little things about discipline before we go on to look at this story in the Gospels. If you don't experience the discipline of God in your life, this passage is saying, we are not truly sons and daughters of his. That's quite challenging, isn't it? If we're not experiencing his discipline from time to time, well, we're not truly his sons and daughters. Don't know what you make of that. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The, the writer is also saying in this passage, it's always good for us. Again, that's not a kind of intuitive reaction to it, is it? The writer is also saying it produces fruit. There'll be a harvest when God is shaping, correcting, training in the way that he does. But here, and then at the end, sorry, he says, it hurts. It hurts. Which I think is unbelievably real of this writer. We don't tend to talk about pain as in God being connected to pain. But this passage says that discipline hurts. It's painful at the time. I don't know about you, but this messes with my head a bit. It messes with my head a bit because in a worldly perspective, we don't associate, you know, love with, with discipline in a way that causes pain. But that's what this passage is saying. Discipline that is the correction and the cultivation of a heart and character. Discipline that is for our good for the future to produce something in us that isn't yet there. This, this uh, writer is saying is painful. We can't get away from it. It's painful. The intervention of God in our lives that will produce fruit at times, not always, but at times, will be painful. So let's hold on to what this passage says about God the Father and look at another story in the Gospels. Because if, we, if we're wanting to know and understand the teaching in the New Testament, we always have to look at Jesus. What can we see? Can we see it meted out in Jesus' life? Can we see what we believe we're understanding about what the Bible says about God? Can we see it in the life of Jesus? Because Jesus said he came to show us what the Father is really like. So, going to take us to the story of Lazarus. It's a very familiar one. You know, I'm sure most of us know it here. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were a bunch of siblings who were Jesus' great friends. Uh, the Bible talks and says a number of times, tells us how much Jesus loved them. They were, they were buddies of his and he spent a lot of time hanging out with them. And in this particular story, uh, Lazarus falls ill. We're not to told what happens to him. He might have got... Uh, had severe diarrhea and vomiting because they won't have had very good medication in those days. Maybe he had septicemia. Maybe uh, he was, um, I don't know, had pneumonia or something. We're not told. But we know that he's seriously ill, so seriously ill that Mary and Martha, his sisters, send word to Jesus who's, who's miles off saying, our brother is ill, please come and help. And uh, we all know that at the end of the story, Lazarus ends up in a tomb because he's died. And then there's this incredibly dramatic scene where Jesus is standing outside the tomb and he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I think it's one of those moments that I would, you know, I don't know what your favorite gospel moments are. That is definitely one of the ones I would just love to have been standing there in that dramatic moment, hearing Jesus call out to this dead body and this man coming out sort of, you know, in his, in his um, you know, linen bandages or whatever they were and uh, this dead man walking out of a tomb having been brought back to life and we tend to kind of fast forward to that end uh, bit of the story because it's so exciting and dramatic but in the process we tend to overlook what happened in the meantime and we tend to fast forward what led up to it and uh, 
you know, what led up to it was, in some respects, rather counterintuitive for what we, what we know about Jesus. So Mary and Martha send Jesus this message. Come and help. Lazarus is dying. What does Jesus do next? What does Jesus do next? He doesn't get up, rush to the scene because his best friend or one of his best friends is about to die. He sits back and he says to his friends, let's stay around here for another couple of days. The man who healed everybody that came to him pretty much, the blind man that asked for healing, the bleeding woman who didn't even ask for healing and came and touched him, uh, the paralytic whose friends lowered him down, the man who healed so many that came and asked for his help when his close friends, Mary and Martha, said, please come, please come, our brother is dying. Jesus sits still and stays put. Even though the passage says he loved them. Ouch. That's a bit of an ouch moment, don't you think? Jesus sits still. He deliberately creates a delay. And what happens in that that period of time of this delay that he deliberately creates? Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies because Jesus doesn't get up and help him. I mean, he could actually have prayed a prayer from where he was. You know, that's how the centurion's uh, servant was healed. Jesus just stood where he was, prayed a prayer, and he was healed from a distance. So good job, I think, that there weren't mobile phones in those days. <laughs> you know, Jesus says to his disciples, do you know what? It was a good job that I wasn't there. For your sake, I'm pleased that I didn't get up and do anything. And I think if there'd be mobile phones, can you imagine sort of someone like Thomas texting Mary and Martha and saying, Jesus thinks it's a really good thing that he didn't come? You know, we, put, we fast forward it, but I think, imagine, imagine what it was like over, over where Lazarus lived. They'd called to Jesus. They knew he could help. And yet they watched, you know, they, they watched their brother die. They watched their brother die because he didn't come. He creates this delay and Mary and Martha and all the friends and the people that love Lazarus go through this whole pile of pain. I don't know about you, but that messes with my head. That messes with my head a bit that Jesus chose to create a delay. He could have done something different, but he didn't. But we know what that feels like, don't we? To experience the Father's delay to experience him not intervening when we ask him to. We know what it's like to experience him not intervening when we ask him to provide a new job or when we ask him to provide resources or when we ask him to provide a relationship or when we ask him to heal or when we ask him to restore or when we ask for provision or when we're asking for our breakthrough. If you're anything you're like me, you know what it's like when he doesn't respond immediately. You know what it's like to experience the pain of waiting. And maybe sometimes the deterioration of the circumstances that you're contending for that he's not responding to. It's familiar. It's a familiar story. We know what it's like. Why would he do that? Why would he do that to the people he loves? As a good, good father, as a perfect father, why would he do that? He says this in verse 14, as I've said, Lazarus is dead. 
And for your sake, I'm glad he wasn't there. What he's really saying is, do you know what? I love you all so much. I'm willing to let you go through a bit of heartbreak. I'm willing to let this distress happen to you for a season so that you will see, so that you will learn, so that you will discover more of God, so that you will grow, your faith will grow, so that you will see more of the glory of God when I do move. He loves us so much, he's more committed to our growth and to what he can do in us and through us than to our comfort. He is the comforter. He does care about our comfort, but not more than he cares about our relationship with him, our seeing his glory, his name being glorified, his work on earth. There was an incredible move of God in this place when Jesus showed up. But for that move of God to happen, Jesus had to hold back and allow the delay to happen first. And that's the love of a father who will not intervene, who will not make everything okay, who will allow us to struggle and wrestle with difficulties for a season because he's at work to prepare us for a move of God and to prepare others for a move of God around us. Because when Jesus finally showed up and when he began to move in that place, it wasn't just Mary and Martha and Lazarus that had this extraordinary encounter with God and saw more of God's glory, but there were tons of people around who were blessed by it as well. This is the Father at work. This is the Father at work. And it's consistent with his loving heart. Jay, there are people out there who say, I can't believe in a God who would be like this, who would allow pain. But this is the father that we worship. Jesus didn't cause Lazarus' sickness, but he didn't intervene immediately because God was going to be glorified and his people were going to grow and be strengthened and uh, be more fruitful because of his delay. When Joshua was a baby, we had a bit of a, a terrible accident at home. And uh, somebody was staying with us and they put uh, a hot cup of tea down on the table next to where he was sitting. And being an inquisitive baby, uh, he reached out, pulled the cup of tea and poured the boiling uh, cup of liquid all over himself. Uh, He started screaming. I ripped his clothes off because I didn't really know what else to do. And I thought, well, that's the way of getting the heat away from his body. And uh, I phoned the doctor and said, what on earth do I do? Told him what had happened. And he said, the doctor said, you've got to take him to A&E. But before you do, run a cold bath, fill it with cold water, because he'd he'd scalded himself all the way down his chest and his legs. Sit him in the cold bath up to his shoulder for 20 minutes to take the heat out of his skin and then take him to A&E. So I took him upstairs, I ran this cold bath, and I put my baby in this bath uh, to take the heat out of his skin before I took him to hospital. And he was screaming, and I was sobbing. But I was doing it for his good, because of what would go on to happen. He doesn't have a single scar on his body, and God miraculously healed him. But those moments when he was in agony, for his good, I was in agony too. And we know about this story of Lazarus that when Jesus turns up 
to begin the move that he's prepared, that God would be glorified and that the people he loved would be blessed and would see more of God in their lives. He didn't walk in with a big smile on his face and go, great, the rescue of the Savior's here. I knew it was all going to turn out okay. We know what he did. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It comes up in the pub quizzes. Jesus wept. He saw their pain and he wept. And the loving father who is strong enough to shape us and to root out of us and to correct us and to put into us more of the good stuff that we long to see and that we pray for. He feels our pain and he's at work in it but he's not afraid to let it happen because of what it will produce. Back to Hebrews 12. He says this, the writer says this, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't make light of it. Don't diminish it. Don't ignore it. Don't overlook it. Don't refuse to engage with it. That's what it says. Don't despise and don't lose heart when he corrects you. Why does he say that? Because it means when God's at work in our life through our trouble, through our difficulty, through our pain, through our struggle, when it's not comfortable, it means we're vulnerable to losing heart. And we all know that, don't we? I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling and when I'm wrestling, I want to give up, if I'm really honest. I find it really hard to pray. I find it really hard to go to God. I sometimes find myself asking really unhelpful questions of God. Where are you? Do you care? Are you at work? What are you doing? I'm sure we all know people that were walking with the Lord at one point and then life just got too hard, got too tough. God didn't answer some of their prayers and they lost heart and gave up on him. I think that's the most incredible thing about our loving father. He's willing to use things that could turn us away from him. He's willing to use them for our good because he's so committed to us as his kids. Don't lose heart, the writer's saying when you don't know what, the good, what God is doing, when you don't know why he isn't responding to your prayers, when it feels like he's distant, or when it feels like your breakthrough isn't coming or when it feels like there's a ceiling over you. He's at work. It's precisely in those moments when he's most at work, strengthening us, shaping us, filling us, growing our faith, getting rid of the stuff that's preventing us from moving forwards and stepping into the stuff that we're asking him to lead us into. If we don't lose heart, there'll be a harvest down the line. That's what the promise is. Two little things. How can we, you know, what part can we play to kind of strengthen our hearts rather than lose heart? I think model, uh, Mary, Mary and Martha model it to perfection. As Jesus arrives in, in uh, Bethany uh, when, when Lazarus is dead and the grieving's been going on for four days, Martha runs out to meet him. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a bit counterintuitive. <laughs> I might have been sitting at home with my arms crossed thinking, well, Jesus has taken this long to get here. Look at the mess we're in. He clearly hasn't sort of shown any interest in making life better and sorting it out. He can jolly well come and find me. Sorry, I'm a bit stroppy. <laughs> God knows that about me. I'm working on it. He's working on it with me. <laughs> but Mary, Martha runs out to meet him. She goes to find him before he even arrives. We need to run towards God when we're in danger of losing heart, when we're struggling, when we're feeling 
the heat when we're feeling the pain rather than run away from him. The flesh wants to run away. We need to allow our spirits to run towards God, towards the one who loves us, even if it doesn't feel like he loves us in those moments. That was Martha's choice and it was a life-giving one. You know, we don't feel like going to church sometimes or going to life group or going to pray with a prayer partner or putting on worship music or listening to uh, a podcast or reading our Bible when it's really tough. That's exactly the moment that we should be running towards him, running towards the Father because of what he's wanting to do in us. We must run towards him if we're going to avoid losing heart and we must exercise our butt. Somebody once said, I think it might have been Rick Warren, everyone has a butt. I love that. Everyone has a butt, but everybody has different size butts. Martha's got a huge butt here, and she's exercising it big time. She comes out to Jesus, and she says, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. In other words, Jesus, this is all your fault. The mess we're in, the pain we're going through, the loss that we're feeling, it's your fault because you didn't do anything. Now, some of us put a full stop after that kind of statement or attitude towards God. We put a full stop there. And in putting a full stop there, we can stop some of the stuff that God wants to do next. We should never put a a full stop where God only puts a comma. And Martha exercises her butt And instead of putting a full stop there, says, but, but I know, I know, even though you weren't here, God will give you what you ask. I know that you can do whatever you want to do. Even though you didn't do this and you didn't do that, I know that you can do something different. And we need to be good at exercising our butts in these kind of circumstances where we actually want to put a full stop. Because it's when we put a full stop that we lose heart and that God doesn't, isn't able to do all that he wants to do in those circumstances. Do you know, a bar of steel, a small bar of steel is worth 10 pounds. Once it's beaten into a horseshoe, it's worth 20 pounds. When it's beaten down anymore into lots of needles, lots of, lots of little, little small needles, it's worth 500 pounds. When it's beaten down even further to make tiny little springs for watches, that same amount of steel is worth £300,000. What's the difference? It's the work of God. It's the process of God. It's the beating down of God that makes it pliable, that makes it flexible, that makes it capable of doing so much more than when it was the raw material. And that's what God does to us through our discipline. It might feel, through his discipline, it might feel uncomfortable. It is at the time. But we become worth so much more, not to him, because our value is defined by Jesus, but in what we can do with him, how much of him we experience, who we can be for him, and the kingdom life that can be released through us because of what he's done in us. So in the seasons when God's at, heart, at work on our hearts in these ways, when he's allowing us to walk through pain because he's got something greater and bigger and better for us, let's do what this writer to the, the writer to the Hebrews says and take courage and be encouraged, counterintuitive as that is, because he is so good and so committed to us as a loving father 
that in those periods of time where it is most painful, he's preparing to release more and greater blessing to us, and it's on its way.